Hello, everyone. My name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about our political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Thursday. Hopefully, guys, you're getting ready for your weekend, spending time with your family, your friends, watching tennis as well. There's a little. There are two tournaments happening right now, the BMW Open and the Astoral Open, uh, which I will not be discussing for today because... You know, the, while I do respect those tournaments, uh, it's just not as prestigious as, say, like what I was discussing previously with the Boston Open and the Serbian Open and the people that are playing with at, at those tournaments. While I have a lot of respect for them, uh, I just find that these tennis topics that I'll be dis- that I'll be discussing for today are a little bit more interesting to discuss. But in terms of news that we can discuss outside of the tennis world, we can discuss Netflix and whether the bubble for Netflix is finally bursting as from the Atlantic. We can also discuss Elon Musk buying Twitter and just my overall thoughts and opinions on all that and why I think it's a step in the right direction for the platform and for freedom of speech as well. Uh, We can also, in terms of news within the tennis world, we can also discuss Wimbledon addressing the ban on Russian and Belarusian players and just how callous they were and just how unthoughtful they were in terms of their belief on the ban on Russian and Belarusian players. But in terms of where we'll start for today, will be Roger Federer returning to uh, tennis in Basel. So if you guys haven't checked it out yet, if you guys haven't uh, found out yet, Roger Federer is coming back to tennis, but he'll be coming back later in the year during the October month. And this is from Tennis TV. Coming home, Roger Federer has announced he will return to tournament tennis in Basel in October. And basically, if you guys don't know, is that ATP Basel happens in October. So he's going to miss the rest of the Grand Slams for this year. He will be missing the French Open, Wimbledon, and U.S. Open uh, throughout the calendar year. And we'll be missing a lot of ATP 1000 tournaments as well. And obviously we've known about Roger Federer and his injuries and obviously that does sting. Uh, he's been having a lingering knee injury uh, since August shortly after his Wimbledon quarterfinal loss to Hercatch. If you guys don't know that was also the same Wimbledon where he almost lost to Monterino as well. Uh, that was also the match where Monterino had, had to retire and thus allowing Federer to progress into the next round but if Monterino was still able to compete, then, compete in that match, you could have seen Monterino walk away with the win. Uh, this was also after the French Open, where he did have to walk over in his match against Matteo Berrettini. He had to withdraw from the French Open and focus his sights on Wimbledon. So he didn't have the best 2021 year. And heading into 2022, I thought, okay, maybe he can sort of turn this around and, and make sure that he can right his wrongs and can play an even better 2022 tennis year. Uh, but with this news, it it's going to be hard for that to really occur and for that to really come into light. And overall, this does sting. If you're a fan of tennis, if you're a fan of Roger Federer, uh, this does sting to hear. And hopefully, we're, we're able to see Roger Federer do well at ATP Basel. Uh, I think the most likely thing that I think a lot of people need to know and realize is that you know this is essentially the twilight of Roger Federer's career. I mean, he's 39, getting into 40. He might be even 40 as we speak, as we as I'm discussing right now. At this point in time, it's very, very important to recognize just how many quality matches this man has brought to you, brought to us. And more importantly, just remember his legacy, because I think 20 is where it stops for Federer. You know? And hopefully I'm wrong. I want to be wrong about this. But I think 20 Grand Slams is where it ends for uh, Roger Federer. And that doesn't mean he's a bad tennis player at any stretch of the imagination. You know, I mean, if anything, it just shows you just how dominating he was for such a long time and how he was able to still win despite Rafa Nadal coming up, despite Novak Djokovic coming up, despite, you know, the current generation coming up with Tsitsipas, Medvedev, and Zverev, the fact that he's still able to win majors and still do well despite all of these players coming into the limelight, it shows you just how committed he is to playing the sport of tennis, but also how dedicated he is to playing the sport and doing it to the best of his ability. So at the end of the day, I think what really matters is understanding the legacy that Roger Federer has brought to this sport of tennis, but also understanding that, you know, players like Federer are once in a generation, right? When you think of Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, they'll never reach 20 Grand Slams. Like, that, like that's very, very important to hear. 
you know, like understand that that is something that's only happens once in a lifetime, essentially, uh, to quote the uh, to quote uh, David Byrne and, and the talking heads, you know, but that's what it ultimately comes down to is that Roger Federer is a once in a generation talent. And I think right now it's very important to recognize that and more importantly, to know that uh, we have to support, you know, these tennis players while they're at, you know, these parts of their careers, you know, so I think obviously this does sting, this does hurt if you're a fan of tennis, but overall, I think what it really comes down to is recognizing the talents that they brought, the memories that they brought you, and above all, understanding that, you know, to really appreciate those that have really sacrificed for this game in order to move and to develop it into a more global sport, right? Tennis for the longest time, it was basically like a U.S. sport, you know? I mean, obviously, we've we've seen tennis players previously, you know, support their own countries and whatnot, but it wasn't until Roger Federer that really made tennis into like a global sport. And it was the class and the elegance that he was able to exude each and every Grand Slam that really showed you just how world-class he is, but more importantly, how ubiquitous he was for the landscape of tennis. And I think Roger Federer, more so than any other tennis player, was able to do that in a way that hasn't really been able hasn't hasn't really been able to be done so far yet after Roger Federer. So I think Roger Federer, in a way, you know, this does sting, and hopefully ATP basketball isn't the last time we'll ever see from him. And hopefully you're able to see more competitive matches from Roger Federer and, hey, even make a nice tournament run as well. And I think that's where I think is a, it's a very important thing to at least process and digest is the fact that, you know, Roger Federer is a, is a once-in-a-generation player. And, you know, hopefully we're able to see more of him in the future. You know, I mean, when you think of the classic, you know, Federer matches, I mean, you think of the OA final between Nadal and Federer. You think of that Miami Open final between Kyrgios and Federer. You think of those classic duels between Djokovic and Federer, especially that 2019 Wimbledon final, you know, where everybody and their mother thought Federer would be able to squeak by with a win, and then Joker just did what Joker does, you know, and, and that's those are the moments you think of Federer. Obviously, some are better than others, but those are the moments you think of Roger Federer, you know, a person that was committed, a person that, you know, never said anything that was outside of the line you know never said never did anything that could upset the chair umpire you know i mean never lashed out at the chair umpire never used a racket and hit you know the the chair umpire's chair you know that was never the case with roger federer he roger federer understood what he had to do he understood that the chair umpire while he is wrong sometimes that in the day you have to sort of take it in stride take it on the chin and focus on the next point those are the things that I think of when I think of Roger Federer, a person that, you know, I don't know if many people are, are into football, but, you know, there's a very sort of Larry Fitzgerald vibe when it comes to Roger Federer. There's there's a lot of Tom Brady vibes within Roger Federer, a person that, you know, is willing to just win and, and take it in stride. And I feel like the current generation of players, whether it's Medvedev, more so Sitsipas and Zverev, I would say, Zverev. I'll, I'll just single it out to Zverev. I feel like Zverev should learn a lot more from Federer because it's clear that he's his biggest influence and he's one of his biggest influences. I feel like Zverev should take a note or two from Federer in order to get in the good PR and get in the good image that he needs to uh, because it surely isn't working in his way, in his direction for quite some time. So overall, Federer is a person that we'll all miss. You know, he, he really is. And I don't know how ATP Basel will work. I really don't. I mean, who knows who's scheduled to play? I mean, probably Walrenka's. I mean, it is a Swiss tournament, so Walrenka has to be playing. He he just has to be playing. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if there are other European players that were also playing. October is not that big of a month for tennis uh, compared to that of September and that of, say, August, especially when the hardcore U.S season happens the u.s hardcore season whether it's western and southern open or even the rogers cup up in canada so it's going to be interesting to see what happens with federer uh but overall uh i think you know you can never count off federer you know even when he's had when he has a lingering injury to his knee even with all that's been said and and, and done with federer I feel like you can't count out Federer out. Like I don't think he's going to win per se. Like I don't think he's going to win any Grand Slams, but he can definitely squeak by with a good Grand Slam tournament run. I mean, I, I still think so. Um, 
So I, that's where I, I just sort of want to discuss for you today with Roger Federer. I, I think, you know, he's a man that still has a lot to learn. If he, I mean, still has a lot to get to before he can win a Grand Slam. And I, I don't think he has the ability to win a Grand Slam now. I, I just don't. I know that will upset a lot of Roger Federer fans, but it, I, I have to be honest here. I mean, when you think of Novak Djokovic, when you think of Rafa Nadal winning his 21st Grand Slam title, when you think of, you know, Carlos Alcaraz, when you think of Andre Rublev's success and how he's he was able to bagel Novak Djokovic on final Sunday at the Serbian Open at his own home court, you know, all of that really shows you that these players, I mean, Medvedev as well, I mean, coming back from his U.S. Open win from last year, you know, the field is getting very competitive. And while... While it may not, while Novak Djokovic may not be eligible to play certain Grand Slams because of his vaccine eligibility, it does go to show you that you know the 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 tennis right now, the tennis game for the ATP side is very competitive. Same with the WTA, obviously, but in, in spe- but specifically for the ATP, it's very competitive, and I think that's only a good thing. That that can't that can only be a good thing for the sport of tennis for it to grow. So, you know, I mean, Roger Federer, I mean, he was a influence. You know, he really was an influence. You know, I mean. So many people from all over the world really saw him and really were awestruck by him. And he was like one of the first, in my opinion, one of the first people, one of the first tennis players that were able to blend the pop culture zeitgeist with the tennis culture. And I feel like he was able to find a road and, and build a bridge between those two avenues in ways that we've never seen before. And I think that's a very, very good thing. So, and obviously when he retires, you know, he loves pizza, so uh, hopefully he's able to eat as many pizzas as he wants. Uh, and that's one of the things that I'm excited to see. Uh, honestly, like, if he doesn't start a pizza restaurant, that's that's missed money. That's that's a missed opportunity right there. He needs to start a pizza place in Switzerland or something. Uh, I'm sure they have great pizza there, but uh, uh, if Roger Federer brought a pizza place in Switzerland, that would be amazing. Put it right near ATB Basel. I don't know. Put some basil on the uh, at basil. I don't. Know. I'm I'm projecting here and I'm making corny jokes as I'm as I'm speaking. But yes, that's that's sort of my discussion with the Roger Federer discussion and his overall absence from tennis and into ATP basil. So I feel like that's that's it for me on that topic. Uh, let's discuss our next bit of discussion discussion here with the Wimbledon uh, addressing their ban on ATP players, WTA players from both Russia and Belarus. So let's just pick it up right here and uh we'll we'll discuss it uh, I, I thought this was kind of interesting the all england club also commented further on the exceedingly difficult decisions to, to, to decline entries from russian and belarusian players to this year's championships hewitt comp- uh, commented hopefully this is not laden hewitt but uh this will be interesting to see um all right Hewitt commented, we believe this is an extreme and exceptional situation that takes us far beyond the interest of tennis alone. Russia's ongoing invasion and the catastrophic harm to millions of lives taking place in Ukraine has been condemned worldwide by over 140 nations. Government, industry, sport, and creative institutions are all playing their parts in efforts, part in efforts to limit Russia's global influence, including any benefit from trade, cultural, or sporting shows of strength. As part of that response, the UK government has set out directional guidance for sporting bodies and events in the UK with the specific aim of limiting Russia's influence. We have taken that directional influ- guidance into account as we must as we must, as a high-profile event and leading British institution. For clarity, it does not allow for automatic entry to Wimbledon based on rankings alone. After careful consideration, uh, again... Uh, after careful consideration against a variety of factors, we came to two co- firm conclusions that have been formed basis for our dis- dis- decision. First, even if we were to accept entries from Russian and Belarusian players with written declarations, we would risk their success or participation. Uh, or participation. There's a lot of words they're saying for just being discriminatory against a group of people from their nationality. I'm very sorry, but this is their disc- this is what they're saying, and it's basically discriminatory. Let's be honest here. Uh, first, even if we ex- we were ex- to accept entries from Russian Belarusian players with written declarations, we would risk their success or participation, and one would then being used to benefit the propaganda machine of the Russian regime, which we could not accept. Second, we have to we have a duty to ensure that no actions we take should put the safety or welfare of players or their families at risk. 
We understand and deeply regret the impact this decision will have on every individual affected, and so many innocent people are suffering as a result of this terrible war. But bound to act, we believe we have made the most responsible decision possible in these circumstances. And there is no viable alternative within the framework of the government's position of the decision we have taken in this truly exceptional and tragic situation. All right, so they said a, a lot of words to basically say, hey, we're being discriminatory and we're not going to be against it. We're going to be steadfast and be consistent with our discriminatory practices, and we will do everything in our power to make sure these discriminatory practices occur and are, are taken effect. That's what they're saying. That's what Wimbledon is saying. That hey, we're sorry that we're against Russian players, but hey, even if they write written declarations, there's nothing they can do because they identify as Russian. That's what it comes down to. And if this happened to a person of color, best believe there will be a lot of backlash and ire against that. Understand that. And this should be against, and this, there should be backlash, and um, thankfully there is, with this as well. This should not be happening. Russian players and Belarusian players should be performing at Wimbledon. Case in point, they had nothing to do with Russia and Ukraine. They had nothing to do with that, right? They did not go out there and bomb Kiev. They did not go out there and kill a bunch of innocent individuals. You know who did bomb a foreign country? You know who did, you know, kill innocent individuals? America. You know, like America it was on, has been on a suicide mission for the past 50 or so years. But do you see the officials of Wimbledon doing anything about it? Did you see the officials of Wimbledon do, do anything to, the, to Americans, to American tennis players after the 2003 invasion of Iraq? No. So why are we having a double standard for war crimes when it's on Russia? Right, just because Russia isn't a part of NATO doesn't mean that that we haven't com committed as many war crimes as Russia. I mean, think of what we were doing at, at Yemen, at Somalia. You know, I mean, think of what we we've been doing to countries and third world third world countries that we have no idea about on a day to day on a day to day basis. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're into foreign policy, you may have an understanding as to what's going on, but the average person probably doesn't. And and Honestly, like we're going to ban individuals from this, from this, for something that they have no control over. Again, I mean, the more I talk about this, the more mad I get. And the fact that tennis people within the tennis community are so sensitive when it comes to being vocal about their opposition to this, it, it, it kind of infuriates me. It really does. And I know I'm, I'm getting worked up over things I can't control. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But I'm sorry, this is discriminatory. I mean, case in point, I mean, this is just wrong. To ban an entire group of people based off the actions of a few is is the definition of being discriminatory. And this is just wrong to see. Honestly, it's honestly wrong to see this occur, especially for, you know, a grand slam that, you know, really cares about class and elegance and cares about, you know, doing the right thing and, and, you know, setting the right example. This is not the right example at all, right? I mean, it really isn't. When you see Daniil Medvedev, one of the best players within his generation, not being able to play Wimbledon, when you think of Andrey Rublev, a person who has been on a hot streak lately, winning the Province 13 title, winning the Dubai Tennis Championship style, winning the Serbian Open title, all in the span of, like, basically two, three months. I mean, to see these individuals who have been on a hot streak recently not play at a Grand Slam, even if it means they make more money of it, make more money because of it, it shows you just how how thoughtless they have been doing or have been making with this decision process. And I mean, this might bite me in the back. I, I mean, who knows? I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm being honest here. But again, it, it's just wrong to see. It really is. I mean, when you think of the women that are not being able to play. Marketa Vuncesova, she's won several, grand, uh, not Grand Slams, tournaments last year in the in the WTA season. I mean, when you think of that and, and many other uh, Russian tennis players that aren't able to play, I mean, it, it's just sad to see. Because again, you know, if they speak out, who knows, maybe Putin's regime could ostracize them. Maybe they can blackball their families and maybe they can restrict what they can do on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, understand that there's like a lot of going on here because... Again, if you want a written declaration of them being against Russia, it's like understand that there is a that it does lead into a slippery slope where Russia and Putin could do something to them. 
So again, I think this is wrong. I think this is disgusting. I think, frankly, this is disturbing. And the fact that more people aren't speaking up about this, it goes to show you just how much a stranglehold this is, and more importantly, more importantly, just how discriminatory this is. And hopefully, I mean, Wimbledon's not going to change their decision. I think I feel like it's set in stone. But hopefully, Grand Slams outside Wimbledon do not follow suit because this is a very, very dark alley that we're going in. And if we're going to call out Russia for it being pro regime change and being pro-interventionist, then we've got to call out our own backyard. And that includes America and specifically that of Britain, who have been very, very interventionist for the past, I don't know, ever since the start of civilization with their colonialism and their colonial colonialism practices. So yeah, I mean, that I know I sort of went ham on that topic, but I feel like the more I discuss this, the more that we hear more and more information about this, the more I get mad about it. Like, this is, like, to me, like, I know I was kind of mad about Novak Djokovic and the vaccine fiasco, and I was very much caught up in the moment and whatnot, but I'm more mad at this than at the Novak Djokovic thing. Like, I really am. Like, Andrei Rublev has no control over the nationality he identifies with. He has been Russian ever since he was born on that country. And you're going to tell him that he can't be Russian because of his government? You can still love your country, yet despise your government. I do. Like, I love America. I'm so thankful for the opportunities that America has given me. While I, just, while I don't really like the government, and while I think I'm very distrustful of the government, I mean, think of, you know, ever since, like, the CIA and, you know, the, the things, the shady practices that, they, that they've been a part of and complicit in, whether it's, you know, the assassination of JFK to, you know, I mean, to more, you know, very sad issues like the Oklahoma City bombing and, you know, I mean, things like that and, you know, the questionable things that were, you know, happening with the Boston Marathon. You know, obviously, I'm not going to speculate any further on that. But you know what I mean, you know, when I, when I say about the government and how distrustful I am with the government. But when I see this, you know, it, it shows you that you can still love your country despite disliking things that your government has done. Right. Understand that there is a difference between your country, your love for your country versus the love for your government. And. You know, while I, I do dislike parts of America, especially when it comes to their foreign policy, especially when it comes to their ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and you know, what they've done to Vietnam and, you know, the, I mean, people don't discuss, you know, the atomic bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, and, you know, the war crimes that we committed in Japan. I mean, go on. Uh, there's a good Twitter account you should follow called Crack Connoisseur. Jinx, I think that's the guy. He makes edits about like certain conspiracy theories, and he does so in a very lighthearted, engaging way, but still gets the point across. And when you see that, it's like, oh yeah, U.S. The United States has been complicit in a lot of dark things that we don't really discuss, and for good reason. But even then, I still love my country. I still love being American. I'm. I wouldn't trade my spot for anybody else's in the world. I really wouldn't. I, I thank God every day that I'm. I live in America. That I was able that I was able to be born on the soil because it it is a really good country. I really do admire that. So when I see Andrei Rublev getting back to the discussion, when I see people saying, "Oh, you need a written declaration against Russia," it's like you can still be against your government and still be against you know interventionist causes and still be against war, but still love your country. Like understand that there is nuance to this discussion, and I feel like I don't know people within tennis don't really get that. You, you think Britain would. I mean, you think, you know, a per, uh, like a country that has been a part of colonialism that has basically invaded 80% of the country for spices would understand that at the end of the day, you can support your country but not support interventionism. You know, I mean, let's stop acting like Britain is on its high horse and acting like they're like the most pure country ever. Like, let's stop it here, right? And England basically like, you know, pillaged tens of thousands of people from all over all over the world. I mean, think of what they did to India. I mean, think of what they did to America. I mean, two of the countries that I resemble the most with, Britain took over. So again, I mean, to see them go on their high horse and be and talk down on Russian players as if they had anything to do with the invasion of Ukraine. I think is is quite sad, quite sickening, and we should all be against it. And I feel like tennis commentators that are in support of Wimbledon doing this, I mean, first off, it shows how, how, how much of a bootlicker they are, but more importantly, it shows you 
that there there really isn't, really isn't any sort of nuance in their discussion or in their thought process. And I feel like that is a sadder, a much more sadder conclusion to draw than that first one where they're just being bootlickers. I can excuse being a bootlicker, but if you're not being having if you don't have a nuanced perspective on this if you don't understand that there's a difference between the misdeeds of a country versus the misdeeds of the human individual then it's hard for me to really listen to you or get you and i i I just think it's it's kind of sad honestly it really is uh i got sad just talking about this but anyways uh let's get into our next bit of discussion here I think that's it for the tennis topics. I wish I talked about tennis matches. You know what? I wish I talked about the Astoral Open or about uh, the about the other tournaments happening. I'm drawing a blank on the name, but you know what I'm talking about. I wish I discussed it. And yeah, I mean, I just want to take a break from tennis matches for today. That's all. That's all I wanted. You know, the thing where I discussed it early in this in this podcast, where I'm like. Oh, these tournaments aren't like the others. No, I just want to take a break from talking about tennis and talk about more about like things outside the tennis world, but also things that are still prevalent, you know, such as Roger Federer returning in Basel and Wimbledon addressing the Russian and Belarusian players because I thought like that just got my gears going and I felt like it was very important to at least discuss it. Uh, so again, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about those two tennis topics that I discussed for today, whether it's Wimbledon, you know, addressing their ban on Belarusian and Russian players or that of Roger Federer's return, leave your comments, questions, concerns, concerns down below are you in support of roger federer coming back in october are you in support of wimbledon doing this to russian and belarusian players do you feel like it's a little bit hypocritical for wimbledon and for the organizers of wimbledon to do this despite the history of britain do you feel like it's a little bit uh sad that top players are not being able to represent their country because of things that are outside of their control leave a comment down below on any of those questions and i want to hear your thoughts on the matter and i'll do my best to respond to each and every one of them if they're bad i'll just leave it as it is uh and yeah that's that's it with those discussions and, to- and topics for today for tennis all right let's get into news outside of the tennis world Charlie. elon musk has bought twitter this was announced 3 p.m on a monday uh, he bought it for $44 billion, and this is from the New York Times. So it was like the title of the article was Elon Musk to buy Twitter for $44 billion. Elon Musk struck a deal on Monday to buy Twitter for roughly $44 billion in a victory by the world's richest man to ter- take over the influential social network frequented by world leaders, celebrities, and cultural trendsetters. Twitter agreed to sell itself to Mr. Musk for $54.20 a share, a 38% premium over the company's share price this month. Before he revealed, he was the firm's single largest shareholder. It would be the largest deal to take a company private, something Mr. Musk has said he will do with Twitter in at least two decades, according to data compiled by Dealogic. Free speech is the bedrock of functioning democracy, and Twitter is a digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. Mr. Musk said in a statement announcing the deal, he said he wanted to make Twitter better than ever. All right, and shortly after that, he tweeted out he, how he will be in support of free speech and that even his detractors will still be on, on the platform because that's how it should be done. And overall, I think this is a step in the right direction for the platform. I think this is great for free speech. I think this is great for discourse. Um, obviously, like people will discuss as to whether or not a billionaire buying a media company is good. Uh, that remains to be seen as to whether or not Mr. Musk will be able to do that. I mean, when you think of John Henry buying the Boston Globe or when you think of, you know, Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post, you know, it does raise some, some eyeballs as to whether or not billionaires controlling the media is a good thing but again let's be honest here i mean billionaires control the media i mean whether it's fox news msnbc cnn cnn is part of warner group you know fox news is part of 20th century it's part of fox as well msnbc is a comcast organization they're all owned by billionaires so having a billionaire own a media company it's not going to change anything but honestly i would much rather prefer this billionaire billionaire to own a media company than that of say comcast billionaire to own, own a media company like twitter i would much rather have elon musk own twitter than have mark zuckerberg own twitter if that makes sense i feel like in terms of billionaires elon musk is the most uh i don't want to say based because that's the wrong word to use in this situation but I feel like he's a lot more understanding and sympathetic to people's opinions than those of, say, other billionaires where it's one opinion, stick to the script. If you're not up to the script, you're kicked out. 
And I, I feel like Elon Musk does a good job in sort of placating to both sides, but more importantly, understanding that at the end of the day, it's all about free speech and getting people on the platform. And obviously, like, this does prove that Parler, Getter, Gab, and Truth Social are done. Like, let's be honest here. Like, all of those four websites are done. They're on the graves. Let's put us on the grave. Let's do all that. I mean, the fact that people were so big on Getter, I'm like, dude, you're an idiot. Like, I remember hearing, I'm a comedian. So I remember hearing comedians be like, oh, you know what? I should be on Getter. You know, Twitter is too much for me to handle. It's like, dude, Getter is, is horrible. Like, their UI is so similar. It's basically the same as Twitter. Whenever you tweet something, it goes automatically to Getter. There's no difference in terms of the platforms. Getter is basically Twitter, but for basically individuals that live in the microcosm of being on the right. And I feel like a lot of people on the right, they don't want to admit this, but I feel like a lot of people on the right need the left for their reactions. They need something to be against. You know, if you have only... people on the right within their own hive mind, especially very user online focused, heavy, you know, right wing individuals, they need something to go against. You know, that's what makes the right do well is being a reactionary cause to the left. That's why, that's why how you saw Milo. I mean, Milo was just a reaction to the left. He saw how loony the left was culturally. And he said, you know what, I'll say the complete opposite and be gay while doing it. And that's how Milo, you know, was able to rise. He knew what got the left to get mad at him. And he said, you know what, I'll just exploit that and, and make money out of it and do the best I can to, to, you know, be gay about it. And obviously, like, he sort of fell flat on his face because obviously when you are a grifter like that, when you are an individual that is only going for shocks and not for anything sort of, especially in his profession, anything sort of incisive or eloquent, then probably going to get on your face. And that's what happened to Milo. But obviously, like, that's what the right is. They need the reaction to the left to continue to pursue on, to persevere on. And they need to be on Twitter, on, on these sort of apps where left people are also on it to get that reaction, to get those quote tweets in, to get those uh, replies in. And again, it all boils down to attention. And Getter was one of those apps where I'm like, yeah, this is just dumb. This is just, a, this is just... Twitter, but for the right, and, and not only that, but it, it felt like it was just not the perfect app whatsoever. You know, Gab, I, I don't know if Gab is that great either. I mean, let's be honest here. Like, if you're kicked out, like, I don't know, getting back into the discussion, I don't know why I decide to deviate from it, but hey, uh, that's just this podcast. I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, when, when you see all these apps, I mean, Truth Social, I mean, Donald Trump basically bailed on Truth Social. And not only that, but if if Donald Trump is reinstated on Twitter, which he should, I want Donald Trump on Twitter. But if Donald Trump is, is on is on Twitter, then he's ditching Truth Social. Apparently, like within his inner circles, he's been talking to anybody that he knows that by saying like, "Yeah, Truth Social sucks. Like it, it's a dumb app." Like apparently, he's been telling people within his camp, within his like circle, that Truth Social stinks. And this is a man that basically is the owner of it. Like this is the man that is behind the start of it so if he's saying it then it shows you that the company is gonna run out dry sooner than later so yeah uh that's truth social for you and uh parlor as well i mean parlor's basically done i mean aws once aws really sort of kicked them off and obviously we can discuss about aws and the monopolistic practices of aws and how AWS has such a stranglehold on the internet where if they can kick you off, they can kick anybody off. And if AWS isn't working, then 80% of the internet doesn't work either. So if AWS kicks you off, then it's a good chance that you'll never be the same again. And ever since that January 6th incident, Parler has yet to be sort of legitimized as a website or as a platform. And honestly, they really weren't even before then. So... um, yeah, that's Parler for you. That's Getter. That's Gab. That's Truth Social. All the right-wing social media sites—they all fall. They all fall flat. You know, they all say hey, it's it's the marketplace. You know, let the market uh, fix itself. But again, like Twitter, Facebook, Meta, Reddit—they all have a stranglehold. They all have a monopoly on 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 the on social media. You know, they all have a monopoly on. On the internet so if you're kicked off of one of those four platforms you're basically kicked off the internet that's what it comes down to so hopefully elon musk does not do that hopefully he reinstates donald trump 
maybe even Azalea Banks. I would love to see Azalea Banks back on the platform, uh, tweeting her, you know, crazy tweets that she often does or that she often puts on her Instagram story. I don't know how she was kicked off of Twitter, but not, but not off Instagram. Like you'd think it'd be the other way around, but hey, whatever. Anyways, uh, getting back into the discussion, I mean, Elon Musk, I mean, obviously people are getting after him and whatnot, but at this point, moment in time, I think just let Twitter run its thing, do its thing. You know, I mean, for me, like I do not like Twitter at all. I mean, I'm on it every day, but I don't find any interest in it at all. I, I feel like it's a nuisance. I feel like it's meant to be polarizing, to get people mad at each other. It's not something that I really enjoy doing. It's not something that, uh, if I did not, if I was not a stand-up comedian, I would not be on Twitter at all. But because I am a stand-up comedian, because I have a podcast, because I want to put my podcast out there, I'm sort of inclined to put myself on Twitter because I have no other issue. I have no other choice but to do that, uh, quite frankly. So yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I really do hate Twitter with all my passion. I really, really sincerely hate Twitter with every pulse and with every uh ache in in my body i really do but again i mean you i i just had to be on twitter because you know i had to get news for the podcast i gotta get news for for comedy i gotta tweet something now that could be formed as a bit later on you know that's what i that's what i'm trying to do you know just put myself out there uh it, sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't sometimes i get shot on by twitter uh because i tweet out a letter uh, i tweet out a picture of me supporting louis ck's new special uh but hey i mean that's what it is that's what it comes down to you know uh that's what that's what <laughs> twitter's all about you know getting people mad at each other the only reason why i'm on twitter honestly is for jinx crack connoisseur on twitter go check him out he's a great editor a uh, great person that you know edits conspiracy theories and whatnot go check him out i mean, I mean there's so many good videos that he's put out there um but yeah twitter sucks it really does and hopefully Elon Musk can change it you know hopefully he can make it less divisive uh probably not if we're going to be honest with you uh but hopefully he can just do things that can allow individuals to just be silly on Twitter. That's all I want. I just want silly. Well, what happened to silly? Why Why are we so serious on Twitter? Like, why can't we talk about, you know, racial groups and, and what they do, you know, and not face the repercussions for it? You know, that's what I want. I want to talk about a racial group and, and just make it as stereotypical as possible, but make it funny as possible and not face any backlash for it and, and just find commonalities within our cultures. That's what it comes down to. That's what I, what I want to do on Twitter. Um... But then, yeah, I don't know why I went there, but hey, that's what matters. I mean, I'm a comedian, guys. I'm I'm supposed to, you know, make fun of things, you know. But yeah, uh, let's get back into the the Elon Musk thing for a second, though. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see like people that are like, oh, now Elon Musk is on Twitter. I'm leaving the platform. It's like, no, you're not stupid. You're still going to be on the platform. You're still going to you're still going to tweet out, you know, your pro Joe Biden tweets. You're still going to tweet out your vote blue no matter who tweets. You're still going to, you know, get all, get on Trump each and every day, even though he's not on the platform and he doesn't read your tweets. You're still going to, you know, uh, talk and criticize and, and critique, you know, conservatives for, for saying the most trivial culture war nonsense. That's what you're going to do. Nothing's going to change just because Elon Musk is on the platform. Just like nothing will change when Donald, when just like nothing changed when Donald Trump was president. I saw so many resistance liberals saying, I'm moving to Canada after Donald Trump gets elected into office. Like Canada will accept you. Like Canada will accept you. A person that grew up, you know, upper middle class yet, you know, works the most banal job ever. Like Canada will accept you. Right, like you are deemed worthy of Canada. It's like, come on, come on. Like this is just dumb. I I really don't like resistance liberals. I really don't like vote blue no matter who liberals. And this is just no change in that discussion because Twitter, this Twitter, I'm leaving Twitter is no different than I'm moving to Canada after 2016. It's the same thing. It really is. There's no difference between the two at all. Uh, but yeah, uh, I feel like I've sort of uh, talked and nauseam about that topic uh good luck to elon musk i don't know how he's going to do it i saw jack dorsey uh tweet out radio heads everything in its right place uh and, and saying that he has trust in elon musk and honestly 
I feel like Elon Musk so far, so so far, has been doing better with Twitter than Parag Agrawal. The sale hasn't even isn't really been finalized yet. Like let's be honest here, like he's not CEO of Twitter like overnight. That there's paperwork, there's you know litigation and whatnot. There's 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 a process to it. But so far, so 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 far, Elon Musk has been a better CEO than Parag Agrawal. Like he has. Like let's be honest here. And like let's give let's give Jack Dorsey's Jack Dorsey his credit. Like he really cared about free speech on Twitter. You know, when you see his tweets on Twitter recently, it shows you that he really cares about the platform. Uh, obviously, you could argue that, you know, him kicking Trump off was a bad move. But let's be honest here. It wasn't his decision. It was the government's decision. Decision. Uh, I mean, people don't want to admit this, but the government has a lot of power within social media co- companies. They do. I mean, a lot of these companies hire staffers within the, within the government. You know, the government actively puts the, the, uh, their shoes and to Twitter and to Facebook, uh, because you know they needed you know set the discourse up right. You know, I mean, if I mean think of Alex Jones. I mean, Alex Jones being kicked off of every platform was the government's decision. Like that was not for social media CEOs coming together. That was the government saying, "Hey, we don't want this guy on our platform. We're kicking him off," and that's what happened to Alex Jones. So yeah. Uh, that's where I'll sort of end off with Elon Musk and the uh, discussion around and pertaining to Elon Musk buying Twitter. I think it's a good thing. Uh, it will be private soon, so it's out off of the uh, IP. Hopefully, you know the Twitter stock is gone to private because I don't know who invests in Twitter stock, but the Twitter stock price is like very low. I was surprised to see how low the Twitter stock price was compared to Meta, compared to Alphabet, compared to uh, Amazon. Uh, but yeah. The Twitter price is very uh, low compared to the sites that we've come to expect from uh, from social media companies. You know. All right, let's get into our next bit of discussion here, shall we? Uh, in regards to Netflix, so this is from the Atlantic. Uh, Netflix, the Netflix bubble is finally bursting. So this is coming after reports that Netflix has laid off their staffers, their workers, their employees. That they're thinking about incorporating ads into their product they're scaling back on production of Netflix originals. And I'm just getting this from from the Atlantic, so bear with me here. Ten years ago, Netflix started offering its subscribers exclusive TV shows. We all, of course, remember the hit series Lighthammer. An approach that at first seemed like a fad quickly yielded a handful of award juggernauts and then became a model for the entire TV streaming industry. For the past decade, the, comp- the company has spent freely to in its library, eventually making hundreds of shows and movies a year with the goal of staying ahead of, of its many online rivals. During the seemingly never-ending era of peak TV, the questions about the company's future have been the same. When will the torrent of offering slow down? And just how disappointed will viewers be when it does? The article will continue on in regards to this uh, discussion. The answer to the fir- first question appears to be soon, if not now. Last week, Netflix announced that in the first quarter of, the, of this year, paid subscribers declined for the first time in more than a decade. It also predicted a drop of 2 million more during the second quarter and said the company would begin exploring a lower-priced ad-supported version. The ensuing stop tumbled, uh, tumble erased more than $54 billion in value in a single day, along with the image of invincibility. Netflix has always, has always projected... The company had likely promised investors that all the money spent on original programming would lead to subscriber growth for many, many years ahead. Netflix has nearly 222 million subscribers around the world, more than any other streaming company. And just last month, it was forecasting eventually growing to half a billion. Now the area is pointing in the opposite direction. The quarter decline could have have been dismissed as hiccup because Netflix has suspended operation in Russia, but the further future projections suggest that this is no aberration. Instead, the company is signaling a crackdown on password sharing alongside that ad-supported subscription plan. So they're basically just turning into Hulu at this point. Um, obviously, it goes on and on and on, but obviously, uh, the quite the... Basically, the summary is Netflix is not doing as well as they would like. They've suspended several shows, original shows. They've, they're now creating an ad-supported uh, version like uh, Hulu. And um, yeah, they're now cracking down on password sharing, which obviously does sting if you are a person that does share passwords with 
other individuals with other, other users, which everybody does. Let's be honest here. Uh, but yes, Netflix is no longer the premier. I mean, I wouldn't say premier, but Netflix is sort of losing it re recently. And I think there's a lot of things as to why that's the case. But overall, I feel like the quality of programming on HBO Go, HBO Now, on the HBO streaming app, I feel like the quality of programming on that is way better than that of, say, Netflix. I feel like Netflix, they give a lot of, of content out there. They put a lot of shows out there. But a lot of their shows are not... I mean, it's not that good compared to that at HBO. Like, when you think of HBO, you think of White Lotus. You think of Succession. You think of Euphoria. You think of their classic shows. I mean, Sopranos is a great show. Amazing show. One of the best shows of all time. Sopranos. You think of... You know, you think of you know, Dane Cook's Torgasm. I mean, the ball has dropped off a lot when I mentioned that. But again, you think of those shows, you think of White Lotus, you think of Succession, you think of Game of Thrones, you think of, uh, of, of Sopranos, you think of the Larry Sanders show, you know, you think of the Gary, San uh, I mean, not the Gary Shanley show, that was a Showtime show, but uh, you, you think of the Larry Sanders show, you think of, you know, Chris Rock's Bring the Pain. You know, those are the those are the shows, those are the specials that you watch on HBO. And when you think of the quality on HBO, the quality on HBO is just that much better than than that Netflix. And HBO really perfected the the art of quality over quantity, right? You can have as many shows as you want, and they can you know go for two three seasons and 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 end abruptly. But overall, what matters is getting in individuals invested in your product. And the fact that they're still able to do appointment television, right? Because HBO is still a, a television channel the fact that they're, st that they're still doing appointment television and still getting people engaged and following and viewing appointment television like i'm 23 years old people my age are loving euphoria and i mean for a good two two months or so in the winter early in the spring as well they were sitting down and watching television they were watching euphoria the day of at a specific time on a specific day they were tuning in for Euphoria. No other show could have ever done that besides that show. And HBO really did its part. And Sam Levinson, the creator of that show, really did his part in getting people to be inclined to watch it for appointment television. No other channel could really do that. And the fact that HBO Now, HBO Go now has a streaming app, it shows you that they're just killing it right now. And I feel like HBO as always, is the premier cable show channel out there. You know, it may be different for specials. I feel like I feel like Netflix, in terms of comedy specials, pays more than HBO. I hear the pay for HBO is a little bit less than Netflix, but overall, the quality of content on HBO is way more than that of, say, Netflix. And, and hopefully Netflix can, like, sort of maneuver in a way that can sort of follow, uh, in a way that sort of values quality over quantity. But Netflix has always been about like licensing shows. Like that's always been their bread and butter. I mean, they made their bread and butter by, you know, having friends on their on their app, by having The Office on Netflix. That's how they made their bread and butter. I've never was really into The Office. Uh, I'll be quite honest with you. Never was never was really into The Office. I mean, forget about Friends. I was never into Friends at all. I mean, at all. I mean, when I saw people care about Friends, I'm like, what? Why? I mean how i mean it's a it's a horrible show i mean i don't i don't get why people find it so amusing to watch uh but hey whatever i mean that's that's how they were able that's how they were able to be successful is by having friends and buying having having you know the office now all the all those shows are on either hbo or peacock but it really goes to show you that at the end of the day you know netflix still has a lot to learn in terms of it being a, a tv streaming platform Obviously, it, it was great at one point. Like, let's be honest here. Netflix was a great, great, you know, streaming show. And part, part of it is because they borrowed a lot of the blueprint of HBO. I mean, they had Orange is the New Black for a few years. They had, you know, House of Cards. You know, they had all these shows that, you know, were very, that were Netflix originals, but still got eyeballs onto the product that were still able to, you know, get fans. And, and I feel like they've sort of lost that over the years. You know, obviously, you know, because of the Kevin Spacey thing, but also, you know, because of, you know, just how they've been sort of not really attentive to 
to the overall quality of their shows. I mean, when you think of, you know, certain shows on there, it's like, how was this able to be made? You know, like how, how was this, how did this get past the, the right, the, the reading or, or how did this get a pilot? Like, that's what I want to know. How did that go? How did that show get a pilot? You know, how, how are people looking at the show and saying, Hey, you know what? We can make a show out of this. Like, it, like there's certain shows that are like, they will remain nameless because I respect the creators and whatnot, you know, but there are certain shows that are like that where I'm like, how did that show get made? I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. So that's sort of what it comes down to with Netflix and um, HBO. I mean, it, they're showing that they are the premier, you know, model right now. I mean, every, whether it's Paramount Plus or Peacock, whether it's, Hulu, Amazon Prime. I mean, Amazon Prime is kind of in the same vein as HBO, but not as w- well known as HBO. HBO is kicking everybody's assets right now, and it really is showing. Uh, all right, I think that's it for topics for today. I think I think I discussed a lot for today's podcast. I feel like I discussed enough for today's podcast. Uh, so, guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you like, subscribe, and click the bell icon for notifications down below. Make sure you follow, uh, subscribe to both my podcast channel, my podcast clips channel. Make sure you follow me on my Instagram and Twitter at OJ Tucker, A-J-A-Y-T-H-A-K-K-A-R underscore at the end on both my Instagram and my Twitter. Leave a question, comment, or any concerns down below on any of the topics that I discussed, whether it's on Netflix, whether it's on Wimbledon banning Belarusian and Russian players, whether it's on Elon Musk buying Twitter and Roger Federer's return to Basel. If any, if you if if you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, leave them down below. I'll do my best to respond to each and every one. And lastly, make sure you spread it through your WhatsApp and through your uh, group chat chains. You know, word of mouth is very, very important for us to really create this podcast. And if you're able to create a community based off this podcast, it'll be the best. And the more fun it'll be, the more enjoyable it'll be. And I think that's where where we can find the most fun and most hap- happiness out of it is just being able to really find the commonality within each other and, and know that at the end of the day, it all comes back to comedy. Um, that's where I'll sort of leave it off at that. Uh, I'm, I won't be making a video on my podcast clips channel this week, maybe next week, maybe the week after, depending on the Madrid Open and the Italian Open and, and whether or not, you know, those finals will occur and whether those subsequent quarterfinals and semifinals will occur. Uh, I don't know if I'll be making a video on the quarterfinals and semifinals, but definitely on the finals for both those tournaments. So be on the lookout for that. But if you're on my podcast channel, you know, make sure you check out my next podcast uh, video on Tuesday. So I'll see you guys on Tuesday at 9 p.m., uh, 9 a.m., sorry. Uh, where I, where I usually you know post my clips and my my channel my podcast episodes. But until then, guys, thanks so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening. Avoid the bookings. Enjoy your weekend, and I'll see you guys on Tuesday. All right, guys. Peace. See y'all.